looking to create wealth in commercial property but don't know how to do it, tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead, well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. All right, I'm here with Mish Daniel. How are you doing, Mish? Unbelievable. Thank you, Andrew. How are you going? I am fantastic. How has your day? Been busy? Always busy, Andrew. So long as I'm looking at commercial property, I'm in my happy place. All right. What was the best part of the interview for you, Mish? Yeah, and I think what I like about Paul is unlike many self-managed super fund managers, Paul kind of thinks outside of the box. So you find that a lot of SMSF uh, managers would probably steer you into investments where Paul looks at the bigger picture and he sees the advantages of purchasing, I want to call it units, in these types of better assets, faster, stronger growing assets in order to support the SMSFs. Yeah, like the way that he looks at that. Very few guys in his position that do what he does. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff there. I think where Paul explains and drills down a little bit into the self-managed super funds and the flexibility of what one can do and grow your wealth exponentially through the advantages of having that self-managed super fund. I think that kind of resonated for me. Yeah, and he actually makes a few different points about the difference between a bear trust and a normal trust. That's really interesting. And how much realistically you might need or how much if you have a certain amount in your super, what you can really do with it and why it's not maybe a good idea to go after your own property. So very, very good, very interesting topics we got going on. All right, Mm. well, without any further ado, shall we bring him in? Yep, let's bring Paul in. Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time, and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. All right, we're here with Paul Searle. How you doing, mate? Very good, thank you, Andrew. Very good indeed. Disclaimer, general advice warning. The material in this recording is not intended and should not be considered as advice, a recommendation or offer or solicitation to investors or potential investors in relation to purchasing or acquiring any securities or other financial products and does not take into account your personal investment objectives, financial situation or needs. If you are considering making an investment and before acting upon any information in this recording, you should consider the suitability of this investment having regard to your own personal investment objectives financial situation or needs, and that you should seek independent financial advice. Oh, that was a mouthful. All right, now the show. Fantastic, buddy. So, mate, can you just give the listeners a little bit about your property background? Look, I'm not actually a property expert per se, although I've done quite well on my own personal properties, but I'm a financial planner that understands how property works how it comes together to be able to form a really solid part of your overall portfolio. So please don't ask me where to buy, but once you've found a good property, I can definitely work with you to make sure it fits into your portfolio and produces the results that you want. Perfect. 
So, mate, today we're going to have a chat about self-managed super funds because I believe you're well-versed in that space. Can you first just tell us what is a self-managed super fund? Yeah, sure, Andrew. Look, a self-managed super fund is where you take control of your own superannuation. So, for example, you might have your super with Sun Super. And you might have a couple of hundred thousand in there, 300,000, and that's been invested on your behalf predominantly in the share market. So what you do with the self-managed super fund is you set up your own entity, you roll over that superannuation from Sun Super, and then you are now in charge of the investments and you decide where to invest. So you have total transparency of what you're doing and control. Predominant reason for people setting up a self-managed super fund is having that control over their own retirement. What are the actual steps to start converting it? What do you need to do? Right. If you want us to establish your super fund, you need to go through what we call an advice process because a self-managed super fund is not for everyone. And part of our advice process will be working with you, the client, to determine whether it's in your best interest to set up one and also whether it's appropriate for you. So once you've gone through that advice process and assuming that comes out all good, we would then on your behalf set up the trust, the superannuation trust, bank accounts, apply for tax file numbers, ABNs. As the client, you get full login and control over those bank accounts. We then roll over the money or apply to Sun Super, for example, to roll that money out. And then you fund your self-managed super fund. You might have 300000 in there that you now need to invest. Just on the topic of the self-managed super fund, I'm firmly of the opinion that's where the captive money is for investing in anything. So if we want to get a big chunk of money, I think we do need to address self-managed super because this is how a lot of people, from my experience, I could be wrong, but from my experience, invest is through their superannuation. So that's really interesting, Paul, because you were talking about how many millions of dollars are sitting in self-managed super funds and are fairly idle that those funds are, are not performing at their best? Look, it just depends what the client's wanting to invest in. But if you're sitting on cash at the moment, you're going backwards in real terms with That's inflation. Right. So if you want to attract new clients, my experience has been the investment money sitting in super and it needs to do something. So if someone's got half a million dollars outside of super those people are hard to find they've usually already invested it we're doing something with it to buy a boat whereas if you've got superannuation it has to be invested they can't do anything else with it mm -hmm. and a lot of clients want to get into property Three hundred thousand in super is not enough anymore to do a deal by themselves under our methodology absolutely is enough to do a deal. Absolutely. And we'll get into the fine tuning of what you talk about a little bit later. I think we'd like to discuss initially is just the self-managed super itself. So in other words, converting into a self-managed super fund. So if you've got a public fund, how would you go about converting it into a self-managed super fund? And what would that cost to do that? So to convert from a public fund to a self-managed super fund, depending on what you want to do, so if you're not going to borrow in your self-managed super fund, it will cost you $1,650 to establish. If you're going to borrow, $4,510. Those are our fees. They're pretty standard wherever you go. Okay. So that's $4,500 if you're using it for investment. If you're using it to borrow. So because we have to set up a bear trust, there's some additional fees 
and then also there's the advice costs as well. If you looked at between $2,500 and $6,000 to set up a self-managed super fund, have it done properly, have it done with advice that includes investment advice outside of the property that you're looking to buy, also includes insurance advice. That's very important, insurance advice, because when you're rolling over super from a retail fund, for example, it's likely that you have insurance there. You do not want to cancel that and you want to make sure that you have alternative arrangements in place. We provide that advice. Can you mention something about the Bear Trust? Do you just want to dig down a little bit about that Bear Trust? Yeah, the Bear Trust is used where your super fund is going to borrow to get into an asset. And the only time I've seen that is with property. You can use it to do shares, but that's it's not really practical. So it's property. So where your super fund wants to go and buy that residential property for 500000 and put in a 200000 deposit, borrow the other 300000 you need a bear trust. Okay. So bear trusts purely for investment purposes. Correct. And how many properties could you put in a bear trust or do you need to have a multiple of bear trusts in that uh, self-managed super fund? One bear trust per asset. Per so asset. Per property. Yep. And can you run us through more or less what the costs would be to to set that up? Sure. So the initial advice is eighteen seventy, one thousand eight hundred and seventy, to determine if the proposed investments, the self managed super fund is right for the client, is the best thing to do. Then moving forward from there to set up the super fund with the bear trust. 4510 So those are your initial upfront one-off costs. Okay. So all in all, I mean, we're looking at that 4510 plus the advice is 1800 So I'm going to round that off and say it's just over about six grand to That's set right. it up. So you really want to make sure that the funds that you're putting in there are working really, really hard. Yes, you want to say something? <laughs> Oh, no, sorry. Uh, well, if I was to say something, I'd, I would agree I would agree with you that you need to ensure that the net outcome of what you are doing is going to be superior to where you already are and also take into account the risk that you're taking. So it's not just, oh, we can make more money. It's how much risk are we taking to do so and does that fit your risk profile? So there's a little bit to it with what we're going to talk about later. We don't need a bear trust, so we'll touch on that later. And just for our listeners' experience advice, annually, what would they be paying for annual fees on that self-managed super fund or bear trusts? How does it work? Yeah, sure. So our accounting fees that we charge all up is 2700 give or take a few bucks, but if you said 2700 doesn't matter how big your super fund is, it's just a flat fee. Then there are some government charges for the privilege of having a self-managed super fund. All that together, our fee plus government charges, you're looking just over $3,000. That's for the administration, tax, county work, audit, everything required to run your self-managed super fund compliantly. Then the ongoing advice, which I believe is where you get the most value, you're looking at starting from 2200 a year. So that's where, in my opinion, you're going to be able to see your superannuation grow better, but potentially take less risk than where you currently are, just by getting some good sound advice. And so, Paul, when after you've set up the Bear Trust, how do you go about actually purchasing a property? Is it just, uh, oh, it's set up now and Andrew can just go online and find a property to invest in? What's the process there on actually the choice of property? Yeah, so the choice of property is whatever property is for sale. So you now have 
an entity that you can go under contract on a property. Now, with a superannuation fund, it must be what we call a single contract. So what I mean by single contract is you can't do a house and land contract. It must be single contract. Now, the, the developer may give you a single contract where they buy the land and build it and just deliver it to you under one contract, or you go onto the second-hand market. Those are single contracts. So once you have those entities set up, you're free to go into contract with those entity names. You would pay your deposits while our team helps you pay those deposits. You should already have an idea of your finance and borrowing capacity within the self-managed super fund. You'd formally apply for borrowing. Uh, once that funding was approved, you'll then have a settlement date and then ultimately the super fund settles on that property. And so what about the deposit? How do you put the deposit down on the property? Because you need that pretty soon. You would put the deposit down on the property once you had signed the contract or after you sometimes you can have a few days to to put that deposit down but that deposit would come out of your self-managed super funds bank account from the funds that you had rolled over from sun super for example i actually get asked this question quite a lot because people have got a stash of cash or they've got equity in their homes and whatever but they want to buy a property in a self-managed super they always ask me how do they loan money out of their super or how do they loan money or their equity? Do they put that into the self-managed super and then buy the property out of the self-managed super? You can't use equity in your own home to do anything with a transaction in the self-managed super fund. The only way that you could do it is draw down on your equity, contribute that money into the super fund and do it that way. And then there's issues around contribution caps and things like that. So it can be done. Or you could lend the money to your self-managed super fund. And so you can do what they call a related party loan and you could do it that way. So some advice obviously would be needed around that transaction as well. Mm, and I would imagine how you do it. Exactly. And does it depend what type of asset you're buying, whether you're buying a residential or whether you're buying a commercial property? No, both assets are allowable asset purchases within the self-managed super fund environment. And is there anyone that like overarchingly checking if this asset is going to actually pay, like be a good asset for you and put you in a better position? Like if you go residential or commercial, or is it really up to the owner of the self-managed super fund? It is entirely the trustees, so the owner's responsibility to select their assets and they will wear the consequences, good or bad, of that selection. No one is checking to see whether you made a good investment or not, ultimately. So you might go through a real estate agent, and you may trust them and rely on their representation, but ultimately the buck stops with you as trustee of your own super fund. So it'd probably be a good idea to get some advice around that, like from someone like Mish, I'd say. So, on the property, yes. <laughs> definitely. So as I advocate for financial advice and structuring and tax planning, which is what we do, provides great value, I would also advocate getting good quality property advice because I can't help you with that. I, I'm not an expert. so. Get good quality property advice from Mish, whoever, and then, unless you're an expert yourself, if you're not, get that advice. Absolutely. I think it's vital to get good advice on the self-managed super fund, the managing of the self-managed super fund, and the ongoing advice on the self-managed super fund, as well as the property itself, you know, so the different professionals in different areas, I think is absolutely vital. So, Paul, with regards having a self-managed super fund, what would be the advantage of having a self-managed super fund instead of just a normal super? 
predominant advantage that I see with clients that I work with is they wish to buy direct property, whether it's commercial or residential. They want to get into property. You can't do that at the moment with a retail super fund. So that's the first one. There are other advantages, which I think are important as well. Then if you've got a self-managed super fund, you now have control over how your money is invested. There's also estate planning advantages. So you can have family self-managed super fund and you can pass on generational wealth through that. It's a lot more efficient and you can get better tax outcomes by using a self-managed super fund for those purposes. So being able to buy real estate control and estate planning purposes would be my three things that I see clients coming to me wanting to be able to do with their super. And the difference between a self-managed super fund versus a trust fund? Do you have any experience on the trust fund? The difference you mentioned, the asset protection and passing it down. Now, I know in a trust fund, you can leave your, you can put your your kids on as your beneficiaries or whoever you want to put in there, and the trust just rolls over. From a taxation point of view, there's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, there's two key differences. One is a taxation point of view. Super is taxed at greatly concessional rates. And ultimately, under current rules, when you reach retirement, all your income and capital gains within the super fund is taxed at zero. And the trust fund is not a super fund. So you can't use superannuation in a trust fund. It's just another entity for Mm. monies that you hold outside of super. That's what I was hoping to hear. (laughs) Paul, I mean, realistically, say you only have $300,000 in your super fund. What are the other options? So with a self-managed super fund, let's just use the example of 300000 I mean, you could still buy property now. I, I, I see people with smaller balances doing it. But let's just say you wanted to buy an $800,000 or a million-dollar property. You're not going to be able to do that. So your other option inside a self-managed super fund would be investing in shares and uh, maybe some mortgage funds, typical things like that that you can still do quite well of. Or with what we are proposing is that you can buy into a property trust that we put together and you can take an exposure to that property asset and there's some good advantages around that. So, and you can put in as much or as little as you want into that investment. So I guess you can still have a small slice of the pie without having as much risk in there. Look, your risk is proportional. Your returns are proportional. The risk inside this property trust that we'll be talking about is on the asset is exactly the same as if you own the asset outright. You've always got investment risk. It's, that's why you make money because you're taking on that risk. But you don't have the loan risk, which is a really good advantage. And the structure is set up to be cash flow positive from the outset. So you're not having to tip in money as you go along. Perfect. And so can you share one of your client success stories, like changing their actual super fund into a self-managed super fund? Don't use any names or anything, but if you yep. if you have a really good success story, we'd love to hear it. Look, generally, if they invest well and don't overexpose themselves to debt, they're all successful. And look, we have clients that have had their self-managed super fund for the whole time I've been in business with self-managed super funds, which is over 20 years, and they've gone from having... $500,000 to $10 million. That's not the 500000 being invested, let's be clear. They've also put in contributions, <laughs> a significant amount of money mm-hmm. too. But when you look at a decent-sized super fund, which is what we're all aiming to get to, also the, re- the reduction in fees. So someone with half a million in super is going to pay a lot less in fees on a self-managed super fund than they would with another retail super fund. And then as that super fund grows, 
the fees don't grow. So little things like that can compound over time. And for the right people, for the people that want to get involved with their retirement investments, self-managed super funds are a really good way to go. If you don't want anything to do with your retirement, don't want to spend any time on it, then don't do it. Like you need to get a little bit involved. You need to be talking with professionals such as ourselves on a regular basis and getting your hands dirty, I suppose. But the trade-off is you do that right, you can definitely outperform well, perhaps where your super is now. And you did mention before about an investment fund. Could you explain what, what that is, what you're talking about? Yeah, so what we've got, which has been around for a little while, but starting to get some more traction now, is we have the ability to get a property, say one that Mish is selling a, a commercial property that's worth $5 million, for example. So we can get that $5 million property and put that into a unit trust. And then we're able to have clients through their superannuation or directly, but let's just talk about super now, through their super buy units in that unit trust. And this example we had, it's a $5 million property, would have $5 million $1 units on offer. And someone could come along and purchase a million dollars worth of units and then they would have 20% of that property. Or they could purchase $50,000 So and share proportionately in the performance of that property. It would be very much up to the, the person who's actually running that property that would determine the outcome of that performance. Yes, you'd want to make sure that the appointed property managers, if you can call them that, of mm. that property had the necessary skills to be able to ensure that that property at least met your expectations. And then also from the outset, that, that property that you're ultimately investing in is a good property to invest in. Okay. So it would be very similar to the types of things that we've been doing up in Namble and Bundle those kind of properties where we see the opportunities and we're sharing them and inviting investors to come on board. Absolutely. So you still need the property to be a good property, still needs to be managed well. The opportunity here is you don't have to write a check for $5 million. Even if you had $5 million or more, you might not want to put all your money into one particular asset. So someone with 300000 in super, for example, drop 100000 into the property and invest the rest in shares and mortgage funds or put another hundred thousand in another property so just to diversify that risk so there's some good opportunity there for people that want exposure to good commercial property but otherwise couldn't get into it through their own means now they can okay so we call it armchair investing pretty much in this kind of field, we've got commercial property now. There are not very many people that know how to work commercial property. Commercial property is quite a different animal to residential. I think anybody can buy residential property and it's going to give you that outcome that is sort of neutral or maybe if you're lucky, get positive. In commercial property, it's highly technical, more business orientated. So you really need to know what you're doing. So for those investors that don't want to get their hands dirty, this would be a perfect opportunity. Absolutely. And being able to take up as much exposure to that investment as they want. They don't have to be all in or all out. So that gives some flexibility around their portfolio. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be back after this short break. Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? 
Revolve Commercial have designed an eight-question process that generates a personalized 12-month wealth growth plan, and it's free. I gotta check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today. With regards licensing and certification and giving them surety of investing in these sort of deals, can you tell us a little bit more about that? How does that work? Yeah, for sure. So the the unit trust platform that we use is run by a firm called Domacom. So Domacom have the structure registered as a managed investment scheme with ASIC. So the reason I mention that is not that it's going to give any guarantee to the underlying investment, but what it does demonstrate is there's proper corporate governance around the unit trust structure, which is very, very important. So what you want to have is your investment run well but also held securely and so there's a trustee there's a custodian and there's a fund manager being domacom now with the licensing you need to also be a financial planner to deal in the domacom product so which we are and we're also licensed to deal to deal with domacom so you need to be licensed as a financial planner to put this particular trust together that i'm talking about and my role or part of my role as a financial planner is to speak with clients and give them comfort around the structure. What I won't do, or what I can't do, is give them any assurance around the underlying asset on two accounts. We've already mentioned that I'm not an expert in commercial property, so don't ask me, but also I'm not licensed to deal in commercial property. So there's a bit of a distinction there, but I think it's quite good for clients because you have skilled operators in their own area of expertise being able to assist the client to be able to make an informed decision. And this is a great combination because you do what you do well, we do what we do well. We can make this offer to clients who essentially want to invest in commercial property but don't want to do it themselves. This is really interesting. I wanted to do a little bit of a deal deep dive into one of these investments funds that you put together, Paul. So can you tell us what type of property it was? Yeah, so the first one that we did, it was a NDIS residential property. So the NDIS has some high yields, well, higher yields because of the government backing. But I think the property was worth, if I remember correctly, about 800000 So we borrowed well, the unit trust borrowed, I think it was about 400000 We had 400000 worth of capital to raise. So we had clients put in $400,000. So they now have a share of that property, a proportional share of that property. And it's still being currently built at the moment. It's just about finished. And then once the tenants come in, they will receive a share of the net rent. We've done a couple of those. We've also, the one that we have just about finalised at the moment is a multi-dwelling one that has 14 units, townhouses together, and that project is worth about $4 million. So those are the, a few deals that we've done. And what was the expected return for the investors there? The expected return's a bit different being NDIS, and it ranged between 9% to 15%. So... That's the expected returns, and obviously it's determined on when those tenants arrive and how that works. And so with the actual property, is this something that has a determined period of time where it will be sold, or is it just forever and ongoing? Absolutely. So when we set them up in the property trusts, we have what we call a PDS or a product disclosure statement. Every trust has an end date. So we've set, 
I believe, 10-year periods on these particular ones that we've done. But that end date would be up to people like Mish or the property sponsor. Once again, the expert, will you determine how long you think this property should be held? But let's just say 10 years and in 10 years and return those proceeds proportionally to the investors. I've heard that the property disclosure statement, that's the real thing that costs a lot of money when you're putting together one of these trusts. Is that right? Yeah. So the product disclosure statement definitely has significant fees involved, but those have already been incurred by Domacom. So the fees that the investors ultimately pay for that are are very reasonable and not the full whack that would normally cost to put one of those together. Do you want to explain a little bit about the PDS there, Paul? Yeah, so the PDS product disclosure statement outlines the rules of the fund that holds that property. So when you can sell units, when you can buy units, the liquidity around the fund, what the expected, but not guaranteed, but what the expected return is, where the property is, has everything in that document that allows you, the investor, to make an informed decision whether that investment's suitable for you or not. So you should be able to read that product disclosure statement and go and make a a yay or nay decision on whether you invest in that particular property. Okay, so just to articulate that, everything about that property, everything about the projections, everything about the outcome is basically in that document, and that's what the investor is going to read and decide whether it is for them or not. Absolutely. There will also be other documentation uh, that you put together, Mish, like a memorandum or some sort of forecast around how that property works as well that investors can look at and perhaps rely on as part of their overall decision-making process. Yes. So we put together the information memorandum, which pretty much gives them everything, the ins and the outs on the commercial property and how it works and what our expectations are, what we're going to do. So it's kind of a roadmap of what we expect and how we're going to achieve it. So with regards commercial property, why do you think most people don't invest in commercial property? This is just my personal view. I think that they don't understand it. And if you don't understand something, that's probably where the risk lies. So not understanding how it works or worse, thinking they do understand how it works and investing. So, and also to the price point, usually don't see a commercial property for 400000 That's a million dollars plus or more. <laughs> so yeah. someone with 300000 200000 in super is not going to be able to buy one of those, even with borrowing. Yeah, and I think the big thing in commercial property is buying that better asset class investment and being able to buy it with a couple of mates, with a couple of people, as you say, at 400,000, yes, you'd be buying something that is really entry level. That's uh, probably not going to give you those good returns. You've got all the insurances, you've got the tenants, you've got the the management fees, all of that, that kind of stack up. And at the end of the day, when you look at your your returns, they're not that great. Whereas if you investing, let's say three or 400,000 into something like this, you'd be buying in maybe an A or B class asset that's going to give you great returns without all those headaches and fees, all the additional fees. Maybe get some economies of scale too with a larger commercial property. And then if you've got multiple tenants, if a tenant, a part of it's untenanted, it's not the end of the world, it can still return a positive outcome while you're finding additional tenants. I think the biggest thing with those multiple tenanted buildings is management. (laughs) Your average investor wouldn't know how to manage those properties, to manage those tenants, especially if you've got 5, 10, 15 tenants. 
it becomes quite a trick, you know, having the expertise to manage something like that, manage those tenants. Yeah, definitely. And With all the legal uh, legalities behind it, I mean, it should be a nightmare. Total nightmare, absolute nightmare. And I think people don't actually realise how much goes into asset management at that scale. So, Paul, with properties, is there a value-add like strategy plan or is it just simply like a, a buy a good deal instead and forget? It depends what you want to do. Through the property trust that we're able to put together, you can buy and hold. You can then sell either at the compulsory sale point, say in 10 years' time or prior to that. You can exit your position. Uh, you can exit part of your position. So if you have 100,000 units, you might only want to sell half, for example. So when you say a value add, it's more of a, you have different things you can do, but the management and the oversight is is handed over to someone else from the outset. So the value add would come from the property manager and part of their mandate or whatever they said that they were going to do at the outset. They might say, hey, we're going to repaint the thing and attract higher paying tenants, for example. So that's probably where the most value add would come from. Yeah, like I was just kind of getting on that line where like each property might have an underlying strategy to add value to it over time. And then the sponsor would, you know, detail that in the the IM. And then that's kind of why you would go into that because you you can see that it's actually going to be a good plan. Absolutely. So you would know that upfront prior to you making that decision to invest. That's a very interesting point, Andrew, because often what happens is we would have a look at those assets and from face value, you can't actually see that that value add. But as you move through the property, you can see the potential and the value add as you keep the property. So in other words, stay in the deal for a little bit longer where those opportunities come up as and when we move through those properties. So, for instance, we might have a property that has a strategy A and a strategy B. Strategy A might be to tenant the entire building, and strategy B might be to develop it in five years' time or three years' time, whatever it is. So the investors would have the opportunity to come in and to either stay through to the development or to, to opt out after 12 months, 24 months, whatever the IM has laid out. And so, Paul, with these investments, if you are considering in doing this, what kind of frequency would you be getting paid your dividend? Is it monthly or quarterly or yearly? How does that work? Yes. So, Domacom will distribute monthly the net distribution to the investors. Short answer, monthly. And is there a minimum that you have to invest? Like, how does that work? Like, surely you just can't invest a dollar? No, there is a minimum, but the minimum is determined by the property sponsor and myself. So just from a purely commercial point of view, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to talk to everyone who's investing $1,000 into a million-dollar property. We need to have the minimum a lot higher than than $1,000. So that might be, and this will be up for Mr. to decide, but it might be around $100,000, grand. Still definitely a small enough amount to open the opportunity to everyone, but not so small that it's not commercial for us. Andrew, in the past, we've kept it at about 50,000 because we feel 50,000 is a good chunk for somebody to get in who wants to be part of a commercial property but can't afford 50,000. You can't afford to buy your own commercial property. So the shares, the increments would be at around about 50,000 per. What would we call them, Paul? What would the right terminology be? Um, Yeah, shares is is a correct description. Mm -hmm. Technically, they're units. Mm -hmm. And my recommendation, if you say 50,000 is the minimum, you just say 50,000 is the minimum. So someone could put in 55, 
someone could put in 75, 500,000. You have that minimum so that once again, it's commercial for all of us and mm-hmm. we're able to make it work, still put food on the table. Yeah, that makes sense. For this kind of investment, you don't need to be an accredited investor, I'm assuming. What do you mean by accredited investor? Sorry. Uh, an accredited investor is someone who earns, or has a net worth or earns over $250,000 per year. Oh, you mean a sophisticated, we call them like sophisticated. A wholesale. Yeah, a wholesale yeah, same, investor, same, yeah. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same yeah. Thing. no, I understand what you mean now exactly. No, because this is a retail product through Domacom, and it has a product disclosure statement, you do not need to be a sophisticated investor. You can be just your mum and dad investor, and that is perfectly fine, perfectly legal to be able to invest in this. And so what are the risks when buying into to this type of investment? Where can it go wrong? Because there must be some risk. All investments, there, there are risks. So the underlying risk is in the investment itself, and I'll let Mish in a minute talk about what that might be. As for the property structure, I'm not going to say there's no risk because that's pretty conclusive, but it's extremely low risk. Your asset is safe within the structure. There's a trustee, there's a custodian that all they do is hold this investment for the benefit of the unit holders. So Domacom can go broke. The investment's not affected. The only issue that they have is then the trustee must appoint another fund manager. So there may be a bit of frustration initially trying to find a fund manager and a bit of mucking around, but your investment is safe. So it is as safe as it's ever going to be in the structure. Just as safe, maybe even a little bit more safer than you holding it directly in your own name. So if Mish wants to talk about typical investment risk with a commercial property that yeah please go ahead and people would have heard me saying this a thousand times over there's risk in everything that you do and in commercial property of course there's that additional risk of the property going vacant or circumstances happening the market falling out and things happening where uh, rentals can't be paid however the types of assets that we're putting into these funds I'm not going to take that chance to put an asset into a fund like this where the funds are high so The types of assets that we're putting in are multi-tenanted assets right across the board, a blend of tenants that would support a market. And you just need to have a look at what's been happening over the last couple of years with uh, COVID. And funny enough, our strongest market has been retail. So (laughs) a lot of people can't understand how I can say that. But retail took a bump, but it's come back hard and fast. You know, it's come back stronger than what it was before. So... I'm just thinking about a couple of the properties that we have and that we would put into this would be properties where there's mitigated risk across the type of asset that we're putting in. And we do the due diligence, the in-depth due diligence on these properties well before we put them out there onto the market for investors. So does that answer the question? I think so, yes. So, Paul, with this kind of investment, can anyone come to you and set this kind of deal up? Like, how does that work? Do you need to be some kind of professional or can any old Joe walk in from the street? You need to be a financial planner to be able to work with Domacom who have the underlying structure. So, yeah, if you're a financial planner and you're accredited with Domacom, yes, you can. If you're not, no, you can't. So they need to come to you and then you could do it for them. Is that how it works? Yes, but they'd need to come to me with themselves and their mates. We don't source potential investors 
for projects, that's something that the property sponsor would do and aggregate those clients. Okay, so realistically, you have to have the property and then you also have to have the investors that are backing that property. Then they come to you and then you set up the fund or product. Yeah, and look, I'd only when you say them, I'm not sure who you mean, but I'm only interested in working with property professionals such as Mish because even though I'm not responsible for the underlying investment, I like to be associated with investments that have every chance of success by using professionals with proven track records. You're on to a, a good one there. I can back you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <All> guys. Right. <laughs> um, I'll take that from whence it comes. <laughs> All right. Well, this looks like a, a good time to move into the next segment of the show, which is the fire round. Welcome to the fire round. In this segment, we're going to ask the same four questions to each guest on each episode. So, Mish, do you want to kick it off? Good. Okay. So, Paul, if you could only read one business book in your lifetime, which book would it be and why? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. <laughs> Great. And the reason that, because I've read it, I've read it a couple of times, and actually I'm going to start reading it again. Thank you. But the reason being is I believe, I have a firm conviction on this, that it all starts with your mind and what you think and your mindset. And it was a great book, and I'm still looking to apply those principles in my own life. Fantastic book. And uh, you, you literally get more out of it every single time you read it. It does not get old. Yes, yeah, so, well, that's what I'm finding so far, and I will be picking it up again on my Kindle tonight. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. So, mate, if you had $1 million deposit right now, and you had to invest it tomorrow, or you'd lose it to the tax man, where would you go and invest it, and what would you invest it in? So this is just my personal view. This is not advice. But what I would do is I would, and I'm not being silly here, I would contact Mish and say, I want to invest 300000 in the next project that you've got going. I would stick 300000 in an on-call mortgage fund, and I'd put 300000 with a long-set, high-growth a managed fund. And the reason that I'd have 300,000 set aside is the market's a bit dodgy at the moment and maybe it might continue to drop and then I could also buy back in then. Great answer. <laughs> and Paul, if you lost everything that you own, if you lost your net wealth, every single thing, yeah, and you had to start all over again, what would be the first thing that you would do to start all over again? I'd start doing what I'm doing now and probably skip a lot of the pain that I had 20 years ago. <laughs> so um, I, I enjoy what I'm doing now and I like it. I love helping clients being able to get into investments that they probably couldn't otherwise get into. I love explaining and educating clients so together we can make good decisions. So yeah, I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Awesome. All right, mate, so apart from being a financial planner, what are some of your other favorite hobbies? I love camping, being outside, fishing, hanging out with the kids, riding my electric scooter. <laughs> and so if, if I can get outside, it's a good day. I don't like being cooped up inside. With you there. <laughs> Is it legal to ride the electric scooter on the road in Brisbane? Because I've heard in Sydney it's a big thing now. Everyone's getting fined. We can still do it here. I'm not sure about on the road. There's a speed limit of 25 k's. I just say, don't be a goose and go flying past a cop and you should be all right. It's actually not legal to ride electric scooters on the road. You're only allowed to ride them on bicycle walking tracks. However, 
there are certain roads where the bicycle tracks go onto the road. So kind of by default, I think Brisbane's sort of flying under the radar right now. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't take my scooter on the road. I think I'd yeah, I wouldn't be alive today if I did. I just keep it to the to the footpaths and just go nice and slow. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you're obviously not a 15- or 16-year-old bloke that um, is out to see how fast your scooter can go, right? No, I've done that twice, and that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's brilliant. All right, mate. So where can listeners go to find out more about you? They can go to our website at ascendancyplanning.com.au. They can email me, which is probably preferable, at paul at ascendancyplanning.com.au. And love to have a chat, see how we can help. We don't end up helping everyone, but it's worth talking and seeing what we can do. And for the people that we do help, we're getting really, really, really good results. Perfect, mate. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Paul. All right. See you, guys. Thanks. See you, Paul. All right. This has been Mish Daniel and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Where wealth revolves around you. Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.